Thank you, Bert and Jean Ellen. As always, great job. Could you turn your Bibles to the book of Obadiah, Obadiah verse 1. Obadiah verse 1, only one chapter long. And uh, we're going to continue our study of this fantastic book, which is a lot in it. Uh, we're going to be learning about uh, divine retribution, the judgment of God, but also uh, restoration, the restoration of the nation of Israel, and the millennial reign of Jesus Christ, all of which we'll be a part of. Uh, we also see that uh, you know, God, how God judges the nations, which is very apropos in our day and age because we are concerned, those who are patriots, we are very concerned about the United States of America. And uh, so this, uh, this particular book, along with the rest of the minor prophets, they're like this. They'll, they tell in the Old Testament, they teach us um, how God uh, rules the nations. And uh, as we pointed out, he uses one evil nation to destroy other evil nations. Of course, we also studied in our study of Jude that uh, all the nations are under the deception of Satan. He's the, he's the God of this world, as we pointed out many times. Uh, the whole world is under his power. And uh, this is one of the reasons why we need to pray for our the leadership in our country, federal, state, and local level governments. Uh, all different branches of our government, military, those involved in covert operations and all that stuff that we got, got going on in our country for the security of this nation, uh, we should be praying uh, for them. And uh, we're uh, right now, the United States of America, because of the presence of the church and a small remnant, or we call it the pivot, uh, is uh, keeping this country uh, in the place it is as head of the nations right now. But uh, we are losing, the pivot is not as strong as it used to be, and so uh, this uh, God is, uh, wants us to know what we need to do uh, in relation to this situation, which is to live the spiritual life, intercede in prayer for our members of our uh, government, and uh, live out the gospel in our own lives and communicate the gospel uh, to the non-Christian community when we get the opportunity. So we're going to be looking at today, uh, in, the, in the first session, We'll be looking at Obadiah verses 5 and 6, which talk about the wealth of Edom will be plundered. And then in the second session, we'll note uh, Obadiah verse 7. So as we normally do, we take a moment of silent prayer to ensure the fact that we're in fellowship with God, filled with the Spirit. And to do this, we take the moment of silent prayer to examine ourselves. And, uh, and when we confess any sins to the Father, 1 John 1, 9, He, God the Father, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. In other words, He purifies us from each and every wrongdoing. We maintain that fellowship by obeying the Spirit who speaks to us through the Scriptures, which He's inspired. And that's when we're obeying the commands of Ephesians 5, 18, to be filled with the Spirit. And Colossians 3, 16, to let the Word of Christ richly dwell in our souls. If there's anything that's bothering you, disturbing or distracting to you, don't insult God right now, or at any time you should. Never uh, be living in fear of anything. Cast all your anxieties upon the Lord because He cares for you. So with that in mind, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for another day to study your almighty word, not only to experience this wonderful creation that you've given to us to enjoy, but also the great fellowship that we have with you, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, 
and also other like-minded believers that are assembled here this morning here in the chapel here in Huntsville, Alabama. We just thank you, Father, for bringing us all together. I thank you for everyone here this morning and those who might be listening uh, to these uh, broadcasts, these services uh, through our various websites and podcasts and media platforms that you've given to us. I just thank you for uh, the freedoms that we have in this country. Father, I lift up our our president, the vice president, and the cabinet and the family, the executive, judicial, legislative branches of our federal, state, and local governments. Uh, Thank you for those who are in the public domain, the firefighters, police officers, other paramilitary organizations, people involved and protecting us from foreign uh, attack and those uh, undercover and uh, and, uh, involved in the uh, CIA or uh, national security in some form or another. Thank you for each and every one of them. And I just pray for their families and uh, that you'd help them and encourage them. And I pray you would raise up more people in our government and military that have positive volition to the word of God so that we can uh, prosper as a nation and the church can prosper as well in getting the gospel out. So, Father, I just thank you for all these individuals that are serving this country. And I also pray for the church in America that you'd help us to understand that the weapons of our warfare our divine and quality and character, the word of God in prayer, and help us to understand that the gospel is the power of God for salvation and giving us a deliverance of the things that uh, we fear, eternal condemnation, enslavement to sin and Satan and his cosmic system. We just thank you for the deliverance that we experience at the moment of our justification through faith in your son. I pray today that you would help me as the communicator to communicate these, this book, Obadiah, to your people here this morning and help me to do so with reverence, respect, and power. I also pray that you would use your people mightily in the audience, help them by the Spirit to understand and to concentrate and apply what they're being taught, and also, of course, to enjoy and ultimately to worship you, Father. We just pray as a result of this service that this, uh, this, these lessons to this morning would cause us all to draw closer to you in a more intimate fellowship with your Son and the Holy Spirit and with each other in the body of Christ. And we pray for this in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ's name we pray. The King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Amen. As you can see on the board, we're going to be looking at in the first session, verses 5 and 6, which talk about the wealth of Edom will be plundered. But before we do that, quickly by way of review, uh, Obadiah was written somewhere between 585 and 550 B.C. after the third and final invasion of Nebuchadnezzar attacking the, the southern kingdom of Judah. Remember Nebuchadnezzar in 605, 597, and 586 B.C. was used by God as uh, Jeremiah 27 makes clear in other passages, to discipline the southern kingdom of Judah. The northern kingdom, a a little over 100 years before, in 722 B.C. was taken out by uh, the Assyrian Empire. And then in 605, 597, and 586 B.C., the last invasion ultimately uh, resulted in the destruction of Jerusalem and uh, also the temple and the deportation of the Jewish people throughout the various regions of the uh, Mediterranean, Mesopotamian regions of the world. And so they didn't return until 70 years later, according to the prophecy of Jeremiah, and also Daniel was reading that prophecy before we get the 70 weeks prophecy and Daniel chapter 9, as we saw. And so uh, right at, what happened was with Babylon, they had a coalition of nations that actually joined with them in attacking the southern kingdom of Judah. And uh, remember, the, the southern kingdom of Judah had a, a small uh, a remnant of, of faithful believers like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who went out in the first invasion in 605 B.C., Ezekiel went out in the second one in 597 B.C., 
And you had uh, also Jeremiah was in that you know, contemporary of Obadiah and Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and Ezekiel. And so these individuals, they were suffering by association with their nation that was in great apostasy. And so uh, we see that for 70 years they were in Babylon. So in the, right after the final invasion, we see that Obadiah gets this revelation from God, which actually parallels uh, 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 Jeremiah 49, verses 7 through 23. We might go to that a little bit later. But uh, those verses sound just like the book of Obadiah. And Obadiah got the same message that Jeremiah did about the destruction of Edom. Edom, those people, were the descendants of Esau. And remember, we saw that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, uh, Jacob, was, and he had a twin brother, Esau, and uh, we saw that they were totally unlike each other. And we saw that Jacob was the believer and Esau was not. As Esau, along with Ishmael, formed two branches of the Arabs. And of course, uh, that's why Arabs today would say, like the Jews and the Christians, that Abraham is our, our father, our progenitor, and he is. And that's why one of the reasons why Abraham's name is great throughout the world, very famous, is because he is uh, the progenitor of uh, the uh, branches of the Arabs and also the Jews. But he also is considered the father of our faith by the Christian. So we have uh, uh, this, this revelation given to Obadiah, and it was to condemn the nation of Edom for joining Babylon and other nations and destroying the southern kingdom of Judah. Why was God angry with uh, Edom? Because they were blood relatives. They were the descendants of Esau, and Esau and Jacob, who's the progenitor of the, of, the, of the Jews, they were blood relatives. They were brothers. They were twin brothers. So the descendants of Esau, the Edomites, and the descendants of the Israelites would be the southern kingdom of Judah and the nation of Israel. They were related by blood. So to go and attack and betray the, the southern kingdom of Judah, God was extremely angry. So what we see in this book is that God brings out to us the principle of retribution. We have, we've heard the saying, uh, what comes around goes around. Well, the reason why what comes around goes around is because there's a God who sits on the throne who is a God of justice. And so Edom, the, the very same things that they did to the southern kingdom of Judah and betraying the southern kingdom of Judah would, be take, uh, would take place among them. They would experience what the, they, uh, they, uh, the kingdom of Judah experienced. So there would be retribution. God is a God of judgment. So let's look at, uh, in our translations, we got the, e, uh, the NIV here, great translation, and this is, I'm saying this for the people who are listening to the broadcast, but let's read the entire uh, 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 chapter, the whole book of Obadiah, one chapter long, and then we'll look at verses 5 and 6 in detail. So it says in verse 1, the vision of Obadiah, this is what the sovereign Lord says about Edom. We have heard a message from the Lord. An envoy was sent to the nations to say, Rise, let us go up against her for battle. See, I will make you small among the nations. You'll be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. For you live in the clefts of the rocks, and you make your home on the heights. You who say to yourself, Who can bring me down to the ground? Though you soar like the eagle and make your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. And we pointed out in those verses, verses 3 and 4, the, he's talking about the geographical location of Edom. And I'll point it out to you on, with a map on the board a little after we finish the chapter. But uh, because of their great geographical location, it was militarily uh, fantastic because it kept foreign armies from invading her. 
her, she had uh, natural um, defenses with the mountains of, um, of Esau, they called them. And so they had the terrain for a, an invading army would uh, be very difficult, and you have to go through narrow passes, and 12 men could hold off thousands. In fact, a million-man army would have to go one man at a time through some of these passes. So it was a, a very difficult place to, uh, very easy to defend and very difficult to attack. So then it says in verse 5, if thieves came to you, if robbers in the night, oh, what a disaster awaits you. Would they not steal only as much as they wanted? If grape pickers came to you, would they not leave a few grapes? But how Esau will be ransacked, his hidden treasures pillaged. All your allies will force you to the border. Your friends will deceive and overpower you. Those who eat your bread will set a trap for you, but you will not detect it. In that day, declares the Lord, I, will I not destroy the wise men of Edom? They were famous in that day, the wise men of Edom. Those of understanding in the mountains of Esau. Your warriors, Teman, will be terrified in everyone and Esau's mountains will be cut down in the slaughter. Because of the violence against your brother, Jacob, you will be covered with shame. You will be destroyed forever. On the day you stood aloof, while strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. You should not gloat over your brother in the day of his misfortune, nor rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor boast so much in the day of their trouble. You should not march through the gates of my people in the day of their disaster, nor gloat over them in their calamity in the day of their disaster, nor seize their wealth in the day of their disaster. You should not wait at the crossroads to cut down their fugitives, fugitives, nor hand over their survivors in the day of their trouble. So verses 10 through 14, as we pointed out, uh, give the charges of why God's going to judge the nation of Edom. He always, you see this in the prophets of Israel, he always gives his reasons, the charges against the nation, whether it's Israel, the northern or southern kingdom, or Edom, or Babylon, he lists the charges as the reason why he's going to judge a nation. Then it says in verse 15, the day of the Lord is near for all the nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return upon your own head. Just as you drank on my holy hill, the cup of God's wrath, so all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and drink and be as if they have never been. So then we have verses 17 through 21, which is prophetic. And it's actually uh, the day of the Lord for the nations back in, uh, in Obadiah's day is, uh, sets as, is a pattern for the day of the Lord that's going to take place after the rapture, the resurrection of the church. Remember what Paul said in 2 Thessalonians, uh, that the, the day of the Lord cannot, uh, in, in, in 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 5, verses 1 through 12, the day of the Lord cannot take place until the church has been removed. And then the day of the Lord, the eschatological day of the Lord, the, the day of the Lord of the future, which is the tribulation period, the 70 weeks of Daniel, and the second advent of Christ, that can't take place until the church is removed. Paul makes that very clear in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. So he's now verses 17 through 21, he's talking about the restoration of the nation of Israel to the land, and uh, she'll be the, the ruler of the nations with her Messiah, Jesus, on the throne in Jerusalem for a thousand years. Verse 17, but on Mount Zion will be deliverance. It will be holy, and Jacob will possess his inheritance. It's not holy right now, the Temple Mount, because the, the Gentiles are there, and there's a Muslim mosque there. The Dome of the Rock is there. One day it will not be there. Verse 18, Jacob will be a fire and Joseph a flame. Joseph speaks of the northern kingdom, represents him. Jacob, the southern kingdom. So he's saying there'll be a united kingdom 
of Israel be united again. And this was very encouraging to the, the remnant of Jews in the first century who read this. So, they, so this is actually right now, Israel is united. There's no division between North and Southern Kingdom. Of course, they're not regenerated, and they will be at the second advent. So then it says, Esau will be stubble, and they will, be, they will set him on fire, meaning Israel will destroy uh, Edom in the, in the future. And Edom is uh, represented here by Esau. There will be no survivors from Esau. The Lord has spoken. Now, it's interesting. If you, uh, if you read the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 11, I think I touched upon this when we in the introduction of the book, Edom, like Israel, be resurrected as a nation. Remember, for 2,000 years, the nation of Israel had no geographical boundaries or central government. And no, so now, in 1948, they be, it became a nation again. Well, where's Edom now? Well, they were located in a place what we call Jordan today. And I'll show you on the map. And so Edom will once again be a nation during the 70th week's prophecy, the 70th week of Daniel, the tribulation period. And they'll be destroyed by Jesus Christ and the, the, the remnant of Israel, believing remnant, during that time. So then it says in verse 19, people from the Negev will occupy the mountains of Esau, and the people from the foothills will possess the land of the Philistines. They will occupy the fields of Ephraim and Samaria, and Benjamin will possess Gilead. This, this company of Israelite exiles who are in Canaan will possess the land as far as Zarephath. The exiles from Jerusalem who are in Sepharad will possess the towns of the Negev. The Negev would stretch south, south, uh, south of Israel today and go along the Mediterranean coast uh, all the way to Egypt. So then it goes on to say in verse 21, deliverers will go up on Mount Zion to govern the mountains of Esau and the kingdom will be the Lord's. So today we're going to be looking in the first session, as I said before, at verses 5 through uh, 6, and then in the second session, verse 7. Now, let's take a picture, a uh, look at a map of uh, the nation, uh, the divided kingdom of Israel, the northern and southern kingdoms, and Edom. So we have here, let's see if I'll shrink it a little bit. So you have Judah. There's the kingdom of Judah, which was attacked by Babylon, again, in 605, 597, and 586 B.C. Here's Edom to the south of it. Now, if you look at a modern map of uh, today, that would be uh, the kingdom of Jordan today, which is uh, just right south, to, uh, south of Israel today. Let me see if I can get my, uh, if I could find it right here. There we go. And, of course, well, let me do that. I'll blow it up for you so you can see it. Okay, so here's the modern boundaries and everything. So here's Jerusalem here, you can see. And I'll get myself a pen. Okay, so here it is, uh, Jerusalem, and then you see there's Jordan, okay? And there's an arrow pointing to J Israel here. So here's Jordan here. They're right here, right around here, and that's where they are today. Edom was located there, okay? That's where they were located. And they were, it's interesting about Edom, they were not militarily themselves, they were not strong, they didn't need to have a big army, okay? But what made them strong is because they had very wise people in the government, but they also had tremendous geographical uh, boundaries, uh, uh, natural defenses with mountains. So uh, if you could see on the board, here's a picture of the view of Petra in the southern region of Edom. And so there's a picture of it. And if you were an army in the, in, the, in, the, in the 6th century B.C., and you were approaching this, it would be terrifying. 
One of the things is difficult is, and I tried this out uh, before, logistically, it would be very difficult to support the Army because where are you going to get the water? So it's very difficult in that sense to uh, you know, take care of an uh, army, any army, everybody knows in the military, logistically, the nation has to support the, the military. And if you're, if, you don't, if you're not strong economically, you're going to have a difficult time supporting your army militarily. Uh, so, for instance, Clauschwitz, uh, they, I don't know if they study him in military college anymore, but he, great book on war, and he said a, a nation's ability to wage war successfully is directly related to their economic ability uh, the prosperity. So the United States is, because it's so strong economically, it has been able to uh, wage war successfully and be uh, the strongest superpower in the world. Other nations like China and Russia are not, are not able to support their armies as logistically well as the United States of America is. Look at Russia right now, and they're bogged down in Ukraine. Still, they cannot understand why Putin went in there and did that. It just doesn't make any sense for him to do that. But that's another story for another day. So here we have, maybe God wants him to destroy himself, that's why. So then we have the site of Salah, which is in the mountains of Jordan, uh, Edom in the Transjordan. And that is absolutely imposing. So you try to walk up into that and try to attack. And then you get people, you know, God mentions them, you know, being like the eagle. I'm going to bring you down. The eagle stays in high places and then swoops down on its prey. That's the attackers of Edom would do with invading army. So they would just pick people off. We call it a turkey shoot. It would be easy. You get uh, thousands of guys down below you and there's like a, tw a dozen of you and you can just shoot arrows at them and all kinds of stuff and throw rocks down at him, and, and, and it'd be a, a disaster for the invading army. So this is what uh, we see with the nation of Edom. So you see these imposing mountains. I'm going to give you one more. And here's a view. I love this. It's the Southern Rift Valley looking across the valley to the mountains of Edom. Look at that. Imagine, imagine marching up into that. <clears throat> Very terrifying for an invading army. So if you look at your Bibles, look at Ephesians, uh, excuse me, uh, Obadiah, verse... So it says, if thieves came to you, if robbers in the night, oh, what a disaster awaits you. Would they not steal only as much as they wanted? If grape pickers came to you, would they not leave grapes? So this is a, a fascinating uh, thing with Joe, uh, what uh, Obadiah is doing. If I could, let me give you my translation of this exact same verse on the board. <clears throat> If thieves came to you, if robbers came during the night, would they not want to steal only their sufficiency? If crop harvesters came to you, would they not want to leave gleanings? Oh, how you will certainly be destroyed. So the phrase, if thieves came to you, is the promises of what we call an unreal condition, which is the promises that is presented as one that is not been and could not be fulfilled. Now, when I say presented as, that's because it's possible for a speaker to be mistaken or to lie. So what is relevant, people, for a condition being unreal is not the re unreality of the event, but rather that the speaker uh, refers to it as being unreal. So here in Obadiah, verse 5, the prophet is presenting what we call a hypothetical situation taking place among the Edomites. In fact, he's posing a rhetorical question to the Edomite people in order to make an emphatic assertion. And so he says here in the next, uh, uh, the next rhetorical question, if robbers in the night, that's the next prodicist, that's also the prodicist of an unreal condition, which is a prodicist, again, that is presented as one that has not been and could not be fulfilled. So here with this particular prodicist, the prophet is presenting another hypothetical situation to the Edomite people and 
the citizens of Judah that were in, in Babylon in order to make an emphatic assertion. Then it says, would they not only steal only as much as they wanted? That's another rhetorical question which demands an emphatic positive response and it's used of hypothetical robbers and thieves only wanting to steal only those items which meet their need. So then it says, oh, what a disaster awaits you. Right in the middle of the verse, we have this interjection. So this is what we call an emotional interjection, which functions rhetorically as Obadiah's announcement of God's judgment of Edom. So Obadiah, like the rest of the, rest of the, the writers of Scripture, was under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is making this emotional interjection about the destruction of Edom. It expresses the Holy Spirit's anger, God's anger, toward the kingdom of Judah for betraying their blood relatives. So then it says, if uh, grape pickers came to you, that's also the process of an unreal condition. So here, in Obadiah verse 5, it is presenting another rhetorical question to the Edomite people in order to make an emphatic assertion. And then it says, would they not leave a few grapes? And that is another rhetorical question which demands an emphatic negative response. So you could take all these rhetorical questions and make an emphatic assertion. So if you look at your, I'll, I'll turn it around for you. It says, if these came to you, if robbers in the night, oh, what a disaster awaits you. Would they not only steal only as much as they wanted? If grape pickers came to you, would they not only leave a few grapes? Of course they would. If thieves came to you, if robbers in the night, would they not only steal as much as they wanted? This, the thief is not gonna take the whole house with him. He's gonna take what he wanted and leave behind stuff. Well. What God's saying is, they might leave, these, the, you know, harvesters might leave some behind for the poor or whatever, and robbers will leave the rest of the house but take only what they wanted, but God's going to wipe you all out, clean you out, going to clean the house. Gonna Edom is going to be destroyed, ransacked. It will never be the same again. I'm going to wipe you off the pages of history. That's what God's saying. So grape pickers, harvesters, and thieves, they leave behind things. And so the prophet Obadiah employs these two rhetorical questions to present two metaphors here in verse 5 in order to emphasize that the nation of Edom will be totally and completely, utterly destroyed. They're designed to focus attention, people, on the completeness of Edom's coming loss by contrasting to it theoretical instances of partial loss. So both rhetorical questions present two hypothetical scenarios typically take place in everyday life in Obadiah's day and age, both demand a positive response. So both the Edomites and the remnant of Israel in Obadiah's day that would, would read this would be very impressed by what God said here. This is going to be a disaster for Edom, just like it was a disaster for the kingdom of Judah at the hands of Babylon in a coalition of nations in 586 B.C., where they no longer were a national entity. So it will be the case with Obadiah, uh, with the, the kingdom of Edom. What's interesting is this is another fulfilled prophecy in history. This whole, this, the first 16 verses of Obadiah have been fulfilled in history. You want to look for something in the Bible that demonstrates that it's a supernatural book? It's fulfilled prophecy. I, when people say, oh, prove to me the Bible is inspired by God. Okay, I'll give you some fulfilled prophecy. I like to go to the, I'll go to the, about the person of Christ in his first advent. Over 300 prophecies he fulfilled in his first advent, and there's two-thirds of the Bible is yet to be fulfilled. 
So if he fulfilled literally during his first event, Advent Jesus all these prophecies, don't you think he's going to literally fulfill the other two-thirds that are related to his second Advent, the tribulation period, and the millennial reign of Christ? Yes. So this gives us, this, this tells us that God is sovereign over the nations and he rules the nations. No one's getting away with anything. And this nation in the United States must listen carefully to what the prophet Obadiah is saying because as this serves, his treatment of Edom serves as the pattern for how he judges the nations today. You're going to commit evil against another nation. You want to exploit another nation. You want to betray another nation. It's going to come back down on your own head. So the, God rules the nations. And he's, he's saying right here that he's sovereign. Hold your place. Let's go to oh, the book of Isaiah. Look at Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40. Edom found out, the kingdom of Judah found out, and all the nations of the past have found out that God rules, whether they want to acknowledge him or not. He rules over the nations, and he uses one evil nation to destroy another evil nation. I said this before, Babylon, evil nation. It was used to destroy other evil nations like the kingdom of Judah in the Mediterranean Mesopotamian regions of the world in the 6th century BC. Then came Medo-Persia to take out Babylon, which was an evil nation. Then you had Greece, Alexander's Greece, took out Medo-Persia. And then you had the Roman Empire. And then the Roman Empire fell apart from within, became a, a, a break from east and west of the, of the empire. And they never were the same again. They will come back again during the 70th week of Daniel. But where is the Roman Empire now? The Roman Empire, a lot of its descendants moved to the United States and started another empire, the, the American Empire. And we have kind of, in a, kind of a Pax Americana in the world since World War II, if you look at it. So look at God says to his people, Israel. We need to listen to this. Because we get, I see, uh, I see many Christians and, and people in this country are terrified as to the state of our country. As to the state of our country. Let's just take, for instance, listen to this. About, we're talking about the United States of America as a democracy. Okay, listen to what was said by this man. His name was Alexander Tyler. And he said this as he was a Scottish history professor at the University of Edinburgh. And he had this to say about the fall of the Athenian, the Athenian Republic some 2,000 years earlier before 1777 when the, the, the original 13 states adopted their new constitution in 1787. This is what this man, Alexander Tyler, said. I'm quoting from him. A democracy is always temporary in nature. It simply cannot exist as a permanent form of government, he said. A democracy will continue to exist up until the time that voters discover, listen to this, that they can vote themselves generous gifts from the public treasury. Sound familiar? From that moment on, the majority always votes for the candidates who promise the most benefits from the public treasury with the result that every democracy will finally collapse due to loose fiscal policy which is always followed by a dictatorship. Then he says, the average age of the world's greatest civilizations from the beginning of history has been about 200 years. 
During those 200 years, those nations always progressed through the following sequence. Listen to what he says. Number one, from bondage to spiritual faith. Two, from spiritual faith to great courage. From three, from courage to liberty. Four, from liberty to abundance. From abundance, number five, to complacency. Number six, from complacency to apathy. Sound familiar? Number seven, from apathy to dependence. And eight, from dependence back into bondage. He said this right after they ratified the Constitution. Why is, that? Why is this the case? The world's deceived by sin and Satan. You could get the greatest form of government ever devised by man, the American Constitution, the Bill of Rights. That next to the, you know, there's the Bible that's on its own. But then you have, of all the human documents that have been put out there, the American Constitution, nothing like it. In fact, if you look at the American Constitution, a lot of the principles, like you must have two or three witnesses before to substantiate a charge, you can't convict somebody unless you have two or more witnesses, that's biblical. All, a lot of the stuff that you see in the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, is basically derived from the Constitution that was given to the nation of Israel, the only theocracy in history. But as great as this Constitution is, it's only as good as the people who govern it. If you get people with no character and integrity, I don't care how good the Constitution is, how good the Bill of Rights is, it will still fall apart. So we, the small remnant of people who love the Lord Jesus Christ and care about the Word of God, and one of the reasons why the United States has not been wiped off the face of the earth is because there's still a group of people in the church that cares about this country and they, they love the Word of God, they're practicing it in their life, they're trying to get the Word of God in any way they can in their personal periphery, and they're serving in churches like this that care about the Word of God, that are serious about their walk with God. You're the, re you're the solution. You're helping to keep this country going. You're the salt of the earth. Those who hear the word of God and do it. Not only are the brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ, but also the salt of the earth. And that is very important. Now, God wants you to understand something. Listen to what he says to the prophet of Isaiah centuries ago. And it's, he says this. Isaiah 40, verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she's been received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain hill be made low, and the rough ground shall become level. The rugged places are plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all the people will see it together. From, for the mouth of the Lord is spoken, a voice says, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry? All people are like grass, and all their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass, humanity. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the Lord our God endures forever. You who bring good news to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up. Do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power and he rules with a mighty arm. See, his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. 
He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms, and he carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. Who has measured the waters and the hollow of his hand, or with the breadth of his hand, marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket, or weighed the mountains on the scales, and the hills in a balance? Who can fathom the spirit of the Lord, or instruct the Lord as his counselor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him, and who taught him the right way? Who, who was it that taught him knowledge? All these rhetorical questions saying, nobody taught him anything. Who showed him the path of understanding? No one. Surely, now look what he says. The nations, including our own, are like a drop in the bucket. They're regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. Lebanon is not sufficient for altar fires, nor its animals enough for burnt offerings. Before him, all the nations are as nothing. They are regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. And then look what he says. Get your eyes off of civil leaders and political leaders to save you, to save this nation. Don't look at them to help you. Look to the one who sits on the throne that rules over these men and women. Look at he says here. With whom, then, will you compare God? To what image will you liken him? As for an idol, a metal worker casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and fashions silver chains for it. A person too poor to present such an offering selects wood that will not rot. They look for a skilled worker to set up an idol that will not topple. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth, and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. History is recorded. That is the truth. As I said many times before, where is Gaius Julius Caesar? Where's Adolf Hitler? Where's JFK? Where's Reagan? Where's Washington? Where's Lincoln? Where's Alexander the Great? Where are these great rulers of the past? There's only one that matters, right? So he's, he's what the Isaiah is doing. And you might say, how does this relate to our country and, and, what, and our nation and what we're doing in, our, in the church? Listen to me. He was ridiculing, the Holy Spirit through Isaiah was ridiculing the people of the ancient world and even the, those who were apostate in Israel for their practice of idolatry. Okay? Now Americans... And the people of the world practice idolatry today, maybe not to the extent that these people did in the ancient world, but don't we have our idols of money, materialism? Don't we have our, aren't our idols sports figures? It's amazing to me that we have sports figures like Tom Brady, and I love Tom Brady, right? But really... Why are we revering them and the Kardashians and all these, these people in the entertainment industry as heroes? Like, I grew up Deedles, great musicians, but we made them idols? What were we thinking of? We were deceived, that's what we were thinking of. But people do it today. They make money, materialism, rule, uh, entertainers, sports figures. If you're going to make an idol of somebody, how about, how about making an idol of a soldier that served in Afghanistan a couple tours? They made a sacrifice there or fought in Vietnam when everybody was calling him a baby killer. Was doing, why, not, why not make those the heroes? Why are we paying the big money to those people who are entertainers? What, can, what are they, they entertain us. 
We get it all backwards. Why? Because we live in the devil's world. So God's saying to them, I'm the one. Don't go to your idols. Don't go to your idols to save you. Go to me. I'm the true and living God. These things, these gods that you have are false gods. And Americans have their false gods too. So look at it says in verse 24. No sooner are they planted. No sooner are they sown. He's talking about rulers. So think about our political rulers. No sooner do they take root in the ground that the Lord blows on them and they wither and a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens who created all these. He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls forth each of them by name because of his great power. He's the creator and mighty strength. Not one of them is missing. Why do you complain, Jacob? And to the church today, why does the church complain? Why do you say, Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord? My cause is disregarded my God, by my God. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and he gives his, un and his understanding. No one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those like us in this chapel who hope in the Lord... We have hope there means a confident expectation, a blessing. Christ is going to reign this earth, and if I am faithful in this life, I will be rewarded and reign with him. I'm going to be part of the millennial reign anyways, but I'll have a part of the millennial government when Christ rules over this earth for a thousand years. So he says, those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. Have faith in the Lord. Don't have faith in your rulers. Pray for your rulers. Don't, 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 have, don't, don't place your, your, your confidence on policies and social programs and the Republican or Democratic cause or whatever you're, a libertarian, whatever your political cause is, that ain't the solution. We know that. We know that. We need to understand that and put it into practice in our lives. And, not, and I say this, when you get upset, this is how I know the Christians get upset. When your guy or gal doesn't get in, it's a tremendous depression. I can tell you the story. When President Obama got elected, my, a friend of mine, a Christian friend, he was freaking out because he, he believes in the Second Amendment, Constitution. He's scared to death that Obama's going to take all the weapons away. I said, will you stop? Who's on the throne? Okay? Now, they're trying their best to do that, but he's still on the throne, boys and girls. Stop worrying. That's what the devil would want you to think. He'd want you to be, live in fear and, and, and freak out and not be rejoicing. God wants you. When you're rejoicing in the Lord and in, in the fact that he sits on the throne, he's the creator, he's our God, he indwells us, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. When we do that, we're going to rejoice. If we believe that, we will rejoice. And that's very impactful. Because the world around us is terrified. They're terrified of war. It's coming. The greatest of all wars is coming, and we won't be here. We're, when we're gone, that triggers it all. So they're terrified, and they should be. Imagine being without Jesus and not having a Savior and not having a hope for the future. When you die, it's like, well, I don't know what happens. That's How can you go to death and say, I really don't know what happens when I die? Or if you should be afraid of death because a God that 
who sent his son to the cross for you is angry that you didn't trust in his son. And he's going to throw, he's going to make you experience his wrath for rejecting his son. So the world lives with no hope. They, that's why they, they rely on people like political leaders, like in the, when I was growing up, the Kennedys. And then Obama was a big one. And even the, even, the, even the conservatives had their heroes. They had their Ronald Reagans. And they had their Dwight Eisenhowers and stuff. So that, that we, they, they, everybody's doing the same thing as the other party. Each party's doing the same thing. They're trusting in their rulers. And when things go south and their person gets in, they freak out. That shows you they don't trust in the God who sits on the throne that rules all these individuals. They're all accountable to him. So look, at, we, at those who hope in the Lord like you and I, will renew our strength. They'll renew our strength. They'll soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Now go back to Obadiah. Go back to verse 5, please. So both, we see that in Obadiah verse 5, it says, if thieves came to you, if robbers in the night, oh, what a disaster awaits you. Would they not steal only as much as they wanted? If grape pickers came to you, would they not leave a few grapes? Now, we see here that uh, there's a, uh, the prophet Obadiah is, report, is using two rhetorical questions. And in order to emphasize that the nation of Edom will be totally and utterly destroyed. The, and it's also their design to focus attention on the completeness of Edom's coming loss by contrasting it to theoretical instances of partial loss. So both rhetorical questions here present two hypothetical scenarios which typically take place in everyday life in Obadiah's day and age. Both demand a positive response. Both demand that the Edomites and the remnant of Israel in Obadiah's day reflect upon their knowledge of what these would do if they broke into their homes and what crop harvesters would do if they went into their fields to harvest their crops. Both emphasize, with the reader, the degree to which God will destroy Edom. So the first asserts that thieves come to rob during the night and would only steal as much as they wanted. Uh, a man named Businitz has the following quote. Let me get my slides back up on the board here. So Businitz, and I'll get it, it, my quote up here in a second here. Sorry about that. All right, here we go. Sorry about that. He says the following. He says, the first inter interrogative, the first rhetorical question, illustration highlights the normal practice of thieves Thieves would seize only that for which they came or what they would hurriedly gather and carry away. And then he says this. So he, I'm going to stop there. What we have here is that the first assertion asserts that thieves came to rob during the night and would only steal as much as they wanted. So Boosin, it says, again, he says, the first interrogative illustration highlights the normal practice of thieves. Thieves would only seize only that for which they came for, or what they hurriedly gather and carry away. Now, the second assertion, the second rhetorical question asserts that harvesters would leave behind gleanings when harvesting a crop. Now, interestingly, the Mosaic law required that the Israelites leave some grain behind in the fields for the poor. Now, this was the case with grapes and olives as well. However, 
The Edomites didn't have such laws as the Israelites. What's interesting, Israel, when you harvest their crop, they were told by God to leave some, uh, leave some for the poor. No other nation did that. No other did that, did that with their laws. So in Gentile nations, some gleanings from the harvest would be left on purpose, and maybe even for the poor of the land, well, more than likely some gleanings would be deliberately missed in order to hurry getting the harvest into the barns before winter. However, this rhetorical question is directed at both the Edomites and the remnant of Israel in Obadiah's day, day and age. Now, both robbers and thieves and harvesters nearly always leave something behind. The robbers and thieves only take that which they wanted, while crop harvesters nearly always leave gleanings in the field. However, this is not going to be the case when God judges the nation of Edom. Hold your place. Go now to the book of Jeremiah. Go to Jeremiah chapter 49. And look at verse 7. So what God's saying to, through Obadiah here in this book is, 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 is pretty much said by Jeremiah as well. Look at Jeremiah 49, 7. Concerning Edom, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Is there no longer wisdom in Teman? Is, no, is there no longer wisdom in Teman? Has counsel perished from the prudent? Has their wisdom decayed? Turn and flee and hide in deep caves, you who live in Eden. For I will bring disaster on, on Esau, Edom. At the time I will I punish him. If grape pickers came to you, would they not leave a few grapes? Sound familiar? Yeah. If thieves came during the night, would they not steal only as much as they wanted? But I will strip Esau bare. I will cover his hiding places so that he cannot conceal himself. His children, relatives, and neighbors will perish, and he will be no more. So let's stop there and go back to Obadiah. So what Jeremiah says in that passage echoes what Obadiah is saying. They were contemporaries. Both of them are saying it because God's trying to drive the, the, this home to the Edomites, but he's also trying to give encouragement to the southern kingdom of Judah that was sitting in exile in Babylon. This is another principle about God. When he's judging somebody, he's also encouraging somebody. So, for instance, when we hear the word of God, some are getting conviction and some are getting encouragement. You're saying the same thing to the same group of people, but why do some people get convicted and other people are receiving encouragement? Because one's disobedient and one's, ob one's obedient. The one who's obedient gets encouraged. So we see that God wants to encourage the, the remnant of believers in the southern kingdom of Judah that were in Babylon, okay? And he wants to encourage them, but he also is telling Edom, here I come. You did this, and you, were, you had no mercy whatsoever. They were your blood relatives, and I am angry with you. There is a God in heaven that rules and judges. That's what he's saying to, Ob he's saying to Obadiah and Jeremiah. There is a God who judges. And the implication for us, there is a God who judges. Putin will have to give an account. The ruler of China is going to have to give an account. President Biden is going to have to give an account. They all have to give an account. All authority comes from God, Paul says, Romans 13, 1 through 7. If that's the case, as we saw with Isaiah and Daniel ch chapter 2 as well, all the rulers are accountable to the Lord. 
He raises them up and brings them down. And that's encouraging. Nobody's getting away with anything. It's encouraging to us. We need to keep that in focus because God wants us to seek his kingdom and his righteousness, not be worried about the political situation or the economic situation, which if we read that quote from that, uh, that uh, Scottish uh, professor in, of history, we, the United States of America is going the same route as these other democracies and other nations of the past. So we need to get encouragement, but we don't want to fall apart and freak out. We want to be confident in our God, focus on him, seek his kingdom and his righteousness, and he'll add all things to us. We don't have to be worried about what other, the, the non-believer worries about. We don't have to worry about anything. What are we worried about, ever? We should never be worried. You know, when I was a little boy, you know, people talk about today's day and age. When I was a little boy, Vietnam was going on. It was like, let's say when I was five or six, seven years old, I was aware of this stuff because it was on television. Wow. And I, in fact, my, my babysitter, my babysitter, uh, when I, we were lived in Franklin for a little while, and we lived right near a dairy farm. And uh, I used to imitate the, the farmer and ride my little wagon around the, around the house and pretend like I was him, you know. And then, but I remember me and this babysitter, handsome guy, and uh, I remember he, uh, he used to babysit a couple, couple of times, and then my mother and my father were kind of upset one morning. I said, what's up? And he goes, and I was asking, he said, well, you, you, you know, so-and-so, he died last night, Christmas Eve. He was waiting to go home. He got a rocket mortar attack on the Viet Cong and killed him in his sleep. I mean, I hit home as a little boy. I was like, and I'm seeing this on television. It's like, I don't want to go to Vietnam. I was telling my father, I says, I, I don't, they had the draft. I, said, I don't want to go to Vietnam. I don't want to get drafted. He goes, I got, and my mother goes, you get flat feet. You won't get in. My father goes, they got corrective shoes. You can get in. My father was, he was like, and it was scaring the death out of me. I was like, holy, holy Toledo, are you kidding me? I was terrified. Then, you know, I'd be reading up, you know, Kennedy was dead by then, but I think Bobby Kennedy was still alive, 68. The Cuban Missile Crisis, I heard from the people, my, my parents and everybody, my, my uncles and everything, it was terrifying. Cuban Missile Crisis could have gone up the whole thing. I could have been dead at one years old and I get nuked, <laughs> you know? In fact, I used to have uh, recurring dreams for the longest time and I'd be looking out my backyard at my parents' house and a mushroom cloud would go up. And now, in the media, Everybody's terrified because there's a mushroom cloud that you see on these, uh, the, 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 the mainstream media, they're talking about nuclear weapons and you're seeing the mushroom cloud again. I'm like, oh, here it comes again. Everybody's just terrified. And well, they should be. They don't have Jesus, but we have a God that he knows about this situation. We've been in worse, this country's been in worse situations than it is now in a lot of ways when you think about it. But here we get to talk about war with China and Russia. It's terrifying for a lot of, the, especially the young people. Who, who, who do we go to? You know, who do we turn to? You know, and, and so and the church though, it's a great opportunity because we got the hope. We get, we know what's going to happen in the future. The world's not going to be destroyed by nuclear annihilation. Christ is keeping it intact because he's going to reign over this earth for a thousand years. So, and we're going to be there. So we are indwelt by the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. we got the Word of God that's alive and powerful, the same Word that created the time, matter, space continuum, and holds the world together as we speak. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. He holds the, everything together, all of us, 
with the word of his power. And he's our God. He's the one who loves us. We have a, we have a, a, it's a loving relationship with a holy God who proved his love for us when we were his enemies and dying on the cross, suffering the wrath of God in our place, and then rising from the dead. And we get the evidence and the witnesses. And we get the evidence in ourselves as believers because we have the Spirit. Because the Spirit would not be given to us unless Jesus had been risen from the dead. He, couldn't, he had to ascend into heaven, and then on the day of Pentecost, he sends the Spirit to those who believe in his Son. We did. We have the Spirit. We have the testimony that there is a God, and there's a God who loves us. And here we are in a world, in the midst of a world, that's terrified. Like I was as a little boy of a nuclear annihilation. What's going to, where's my future? And as believers, we have a great future. However, for those who reject Jesus Christ, they don't have a very good future, as we know. They do not have a great future. So, if you look, go back, you're at Obadiah, go back, you're at Obadiah, look at verse uh, five, uh, verse six. Obadiah, verse six. Or actually, look at verse five, I've got one other thing I want to show to you. For some reason, I'm having a tough time with this thing. I know why now. Okay, so when it says, oh, what a disaster. I'll do this while you're looking at it. Oh, what a disaster. That's an emotional. God, the Holy Spirit, the Obadiah, has an emotional interjection here, which functions rhetorically as Obadiah's announcement of God's judgment upon the nation of Edom. So, oh, what a disaster awaits you is an emotional interjection which functions rhetorically as Obadiah's announcement of God's judgment of Edom. Now look at verse 6. It says, but how Esau will be ransacked, his hidden treasures pillaged. So we see here that, uh, let me give you my translation of verse 6. Oh, how the descendants of Esau will be certainly plundered. Their hidden valuables will certainly be ransacked. And so that is also an emotional interjection. You see the O there at the beginning? That's expressing the fact that this is an emotional interjection. Esau here. Who's Esau? We've seen that before. He refers to, this, uh, refers to the people who descended from Jacob's brother Esau, and it's synonymous with Edom, which appeared in verse 1, because the name Esau here is a synecdoche of the part, as we call it, for the whole, referring to the Edomites. So both words, Esau and Edom, refer to the people who descended from Jacob's brother Esau and who settled in the region south of the Dead Sea, north of the Red Sea, and east of the Rift Valley, and which sometimes expanded west into the Negev. So this expresses, this verse expresses the certainty that the nation of Edom would be plundered and ransacked by the Gentile nations in the 6th century BC. This verse also issues two predictions. All have been fulfilled in history. Both have fulfilled. The first is that the people of Edom will certainly be plundered. The second is that their hidden valuables will certainly be ransacked. And the picture is that of violent action of conquering warriors ransacking a city in order to loot and plunder its valuables. So a comparison, we'll close with this, a comparison of verse 1 with verse 6 indicates that the soldiers of the various Gentile nations in the Mediterranean and Mesopotamian regions of the world in the 6th century BC would ransack their cities and towns in order to loot and plunder 
their hidden valuables. The second, we see here, the second prediction emphasized, emphasizes that nothing can be hidden from the God of Israel. Even Edom, Edom's hidden valuables will be plundered and ransacked by foreign armies and that are sent by him. Charles Feinberg, a great scholar, says this, the capital of Edom, Petra, was the great market of the Syrian and Arabian trade where many costly articles were treasured. These will all be looted, end of quote. So you notice something there? We'll wrap this up with here. If you look at verses five and six again, it says, if these came to you, robbers in the night, oh, what a disaster awaits you. Would they not steal only as much as they wanted? If grape pickers came to you, would they not leave a few grapes? But how Esau, Esau will be ransacked and his hidden treasures pillaged. Esau was very wealthy, okay? And they, were, they had a tremendous pride because of that wealth. You know, it says in 1 John, you don't have to go there. Look at what it says in 1 John. God doesn't want us to be in love with the things of the world. 1 John 2.15 on the board. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lusts of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does, great translation, comes not from the Father, but from the world. And the world and its desires are passing away. But the man who does the will of God lives forever. The Edomites in the 6th century B.C., they loved the things of the world. And it gave them tremendous pride. Us as Christians, we had to be the exact opposite. Because we know those things are transitory. Those things are going to be taken away from us or will be taken away from them. As Chuck Swindoll famously said, don't hold on to, to your possessions too tightly or your relationships with people. You know, some people fall apart when they lose some, a loved one. My brother Kenny was a tremendous blow. But it's not going to crush me. I'm, I miss him. But it's not going to crush me. For some people, they're never the same when they lose a loved one. So we're not to hang on too tightly to the things of the world, and especially with materialism and money, because it can be taken away from us. Things could happen drastically. Just ask the kingdom of Edom. So it's a lesson for the people of this country to learn, the church to learn, about what God did to Edom. It tells us what we should stay away from, from because the very things that eat, we don't want to be disciplined by God for doing the very same things that Edom did. You know, being proud and arrogant because of their tremendous geographical position and their military, uh, their, their wisdom of their intelligentsia and the, and the financial uh, strength that they had. They trusted in those things to save them rather than the God of Israel. So we should be the same. We should be learn the lesson, and if we're, we're not doing it already, many of you I know are, and that's a great witness, witness and testimony, and it's something that we need to pursue and keep doing and grow in our relationship with Jesus Christ, and have confidence in the Lord despite the circumstances, and rise above the circumstances, being an invisible hero, as we've been talking about. The world doesn't know who we are, but God does. The world might not think we're stars or heroes, but God does. And the elect angels and Satan and his fallen angels are not happy about that. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this time to study your word this morning in the first session. And I just pray, Father, that uh, the Holy Spirit would do a mighty work 
and uh, struggling here in the first half. I just pray you would help me. The Spirit would use what I said to uh, help them and their walk with you and encouragement of you, encouragement of them from the message this morning. So, Father, I just pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.